where the analysis has nothing to do with the labels. So that the, the labels are no longer the independent variable, but in fact, the dependent variable. We still deep phenotype these individuals, but what we're really interested are in those who have bioassay range abnormalities that would serve to select them as candidates for therapies that we already have and might already be available for repurposing. So in, in, in all this subtyping discussion, you know, trying to understand how many subtypes, it's really not relevant how many subtypes there may be of Parkinson's or Alzheimer's because at the end of the day, that may not be actionable. What we really are looking for is the proverbial needles in the large haystack of neurodegeneration, the individuals for whom, in fact, if we knew what disease they have biologically by virtue of bioassays that we've never deployed before, we would have uh, determined that they are, in fact, already susceptible for therapies that could stop or reverse their condition altogether. Welcome to Stimulating Brains. Hello and welcome back to Stimulating Brains, episode number 14. Today I was really excited to be talking to um, two experts in Parkinson's disease. And namely that was Ben Stetcher as well as Alberto Espey. Together they have written a book called Brain Fables, which is an amazing endeavor between patient and physician to unravel and challenge misconceptions that we currently seem to be having in the field of Parkinson's disease. Ben was born in Nairobi, Kenya, as an Israeli to Jewish parents from Poland, but grew up just outside Toronto, Canada. He studied history and philosophy at the University of Guelph, but as soon as he got his BA, he took off and went to live and work as a teacher in South Korea for nearly three years while traveling the world. He moved to Shanghai, China at 26, spending one year at Jiao Chang University in a Chinese language program before being hired by Chinese education company Sanli. He rose quickly to become a managing partner where his duties included overseeing operations at branches throughout Southeast China, developing curriculum, teacher training, parent relations while teaching SAT and world history classes. Ben was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at the age of 29. He left China at 32 to learn how to better manage this disease and see what future therapies were on the horizon. He is now a prolific author and is actively involved in PD research advocacy. He is the founder of his website Tomorrow Edition, co-founder of the Parkinson's Research Advocacy Group and patient advisor to the World Parkinson's Congress. On his website, Tomorrow Edition, he has interviewed a multitude of international experts in the field of neuroscience, neurology, movement disorders, and of course, Parkinson's disease. Professor Alberto Espey, on the other hand, is a world-renowned expert in Parkinson's disease, prolific researcher and author. He has published more than 200 peer-reviewed research articles, 25 book chapters, and five books. His research efforts focus on the measurement of motor and behavioral phenomena in and clinical trials for Parkinson's disease, as well as the understanding and management of functional movement disorders. 
Dr. Espey served as chair of the Movement Disorders section of the American Academy of Neurology, associate editor of Movement Disorders, the official journal of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorders Society, MDS. He currently serves as chair of the MDS Technology Task Force and as secretary-elect on the Pan-American section of the MDS. At UC Health in Cincinnati, Alberto Espey is professor of neurology and director of the James J. and Joan A. Gardner Family Center as well as research chair for Parkinson's disease and movement disorders. I think in our conversation, we try to challenge some of the conceptual views we currently have of especially the neurodegenerative view of Parkinson's disease. And I think the conversation between, I'd say, patient and physician expert that are also friends and, and somehow colleagues in writing a book was truly exciting for me and I hope it is exciting for you as well. In the beginning of our conversation we also briefly touched upon the DBS surgery that Ben underwent himself. Last time we talked in episode 12 that was only days after his surgery. Now it's three months after surgery so Ben can tell us a bit more about how he felt um, about the challenges of DBS, maybe also about the changes and sometimes unwanted changes that have come with the surgery. Have fun with Alberto Espe and Ben Stetcher in um, Stimulating Brains. Thank you for tuning in. So, Alberto and Benjamin, it's an honor to meet you. I will have, um, again, formally introduced you by now um, more properly, so we can dive right in. And... Um, Ben, you've been a guest on this show before, and last time, that was in June, um, we talked just nine days after your DBS surgery. Now it's been over three months living with deep brain stimulation. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Uh, yes, yes, I can. It's hard to know where to begin, though, because there's so much that I could say. There's so much that I think needs to be said as well. There's so much I think that patients and physicians need to be aware of going forward if we're going to continue to have success and make sure that people live better lives. Because at the end of the day, it really is about making sure that each person that goes through DBS is best selected for. Not only so that they make, so that we can ensure that they can actually have a good outcome at the end of the day, but also just to make sure that the system itself stays in place as it, not as it is, but that we continue to make incremental improvements on it as well. Because frankly, if, the way patients are treated today is the same as it is a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, or 10 years from now, then I think we're not doing our jobs properly. The level of care for each individual patient that walks into their physician's office does not improve starting from this day until the next day, until the next year, blah, 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 blah. We're all, I think, in some ways failing everybody involved and everybody is going to be coming down the pipeline as well. Now on that topic though, there, before I kick to Alberto, because there's one like very specific question that I'd love to ask him as well. The one point that I want to stress about DBS, there's th or three points really, but there's three pillars that I feel that every single patient who goes through this process must have. If you don't have all three of these things in place, I don't think you should be eligible for DBS. And I think in fact, you should be immediately excluded if you don't have one of these three things. The first one is you have to have a good surgeon. I think it's a very obvious thing to say in some ways, but if you really don't have to have somebody that one knows where, what they're doing and where they're putting that thing, and then if you don't grant them the autonomy to make decisions on your behalf and you're not comfortable with making those decisions, letting them make those decisions for you, then I'm not sure you should be going through DBS. If you're hesitant in the days before, or more importantly, if you're changing your mind constantly in the weeks before about whether you want to do it or not, 
or where you want to do it or how many leads that you want in your brain, I don't think you should be going through it at that moment. You should wait a little bit until you're a bit more clear and so you've had more time to understand it. And I understand that it's a very difficult thing to ask somebody to do because one, some people are paying for it out of their own pockets. And a lot of these physicians are very, very busy people, especially the surgeons. And some people wait four years until they can actually get in the door and make sure that, um, and, and then to make a split decision at the end of the day and say, oh no, I only want one or, instead of two, or I want it in my VTA, not my SCN anymore. That is a practice, I think, as a culture, as a society, blah, 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 that we need to stop. We need to make sure that each individual patient is properly prepared. And for those that do have four years to prepare, I really want to ask, not the patient themselves, but the whole like infrastructure around them, what the hell were you doing for those four years? I mean, everything should be spent on, not everything, but like the patients need to be very well educated and prepared going forward about what they are getting themselves into. If they don't know what they're getting themselves into, if there's hesitancy in the days or weeks beforehand, it's, it's okay to be anxious. It's okay to be nervous. Everybody should be on some levels, but if you're very hesitant going in, then something I think is wrong. Now, the second pillar that I want to get is you have to have a programmer and a physician that really knows you and that can really get who you are as an individual and knows, who, knows your personality very, very well. You need somebody who you trust implicitly to make decisions on your behalf. I, I'm very, very lucky that I have that here with Alfonso Pizzano. But I know so many patients that just don't have that person. And I've seen terrible things that can happen as a result. I think you have to have that second pillar in place. Otherwise, again, you should be excluded if you don't have that second thing. Or the, th the third thing as well, which is you need to have a great family environment or some kind of like very welcoming environment that you can come home to at the end of the day. If you don't have that either, you should also be excluded because you need somebody that can, back lack of a better term, you need somebody who can dole on you. Like you, There's many times where you aren't able to do anything for yourself, really. You have to be expecting the worst and yet being prepared for the fact that you, need, you might need somebody to do literally everything in your daily life for you. Um, especially if you're a little bit older or if you're a little bit more feeble than I was. I've seen patients that had a bad out outcome or like they started doing some really crazy things as a result of this surgery and then the programming afterwards because they didn't have that third like, pillar in place. So yeah, that'd be my recommendation after a long rant for the three things that every single patient needs to have. Now, my question for Alberto actually, is going to be this. Um, so after the programming begins, for me, it started... Uh, I think it was the beginning of July or the end of June. So I got the surgery June 1st. So I think the programming was either at the end of June or the beginning of July. And ever since I've noticed that not only have I kind of changed in some ways as an individual and my personality changed as my mood has changed and as my symptoms have improved, but I've had some like weird behavioral issues that I've noticed along the way. And I'm just wondering from Alberto's point of view, because I think Alberto knows me fairly well. He knows kind of, he knows who I am as an individual as well. And also, more importantly, he's known me before and after this DBS surgery. I mean, not long ago, we spent the whole weekend together. Two or three weeks, two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, two weeks ago, we spent the whole weekend together down in San Diego. So I guess I'm just quickly wondering to Alberto, how would you describe to another physician or to me or to anyone, how my personality might have changed over these before and after the surgery and before and after the programming began, if you, if you care to do something like that as well? Well, I'm not sure I could comment fully on things because I may have a view of you that uh, um, perhaps uh, glossified by the knowledge of knowing who you are 
and so I would I would say the personality is the same shining personality you had before, but I wonder if what may have changed is how deliberate you may be in certain things. So I wonder if you have fewer breaks. <laughs> And uh, and uh, I wonder if then that makes it uh, seem as if you are uh, more impulsive or different, uh, maybe uh, disinhibited. Uh, I, I think it's not quite that level, but I think that there is more more Ben out there, and that's good. Uh, the issue is how to channel that Ben Stetcher in such a way that it remains a force for good. Yes, I agree completely. If I were to characterize myself, I would say that one, I'm a little bit more childlike, I think, than I was before because I, all of my kind of senses feel a little bit heightened. So even like food and the drink, things I drink, everything tastes better, everything feels better as well. But I also feel slightly more... I think the best word is really arrogant in some ways or maybe overconfident because I think um, I think I've learned a lot through this experience. I think I've learned quite a bit about myself and DBS and the brain in particular and how it works. And I'm trying to kind of bat that part of me down, yet at the same time I realize that I think I am onto something here. I think there is something, there's some kind of like knowledge that I've tapped into as a result of DBS and especially the ADBS part of this that gives me uh, in the surgery as well. I mean, I was awake for the whole thing. So that like collective experience of like having an intimate knowledge of how my brain is working right now. I don't know. It's put me, it's giving me something that I can't really describe properly, but like, I think I do have some kind of like intuitive sense of how it's working and how I'm working. And then as a result, how other people's brains work as well. Because, I mean, I don't think fundamentally we're that different uh, from one to another. Um, so I think that that, but I see how it comes across sometimes. And I hear this a lot from people around me that it does come across sometimes as just pure arrogance or um, a sense of like, I know better. And while, well, yeah, I guess I said what I want to say there. Um, so, so one thing maybe to to follow up because I think if I were a patient right now wondering whether I should you know get DBS or not, I think your your comments were really helpful, but they would also be intimidating because how would you know whether your surgeon is a good one or whether your programmer is someone you can trust, right? So it, I think it would intimidate me more than um, encourage me to do it. Do you have something to counter that or like some positive things to say as well, like? Um, is it worth um, it in the end, <laughs> if it works? I have two things to say. Yes. I, one, I think you should be intimidated going in. I, I don't think this is something that anybody should be taking lightly or anybody Makes should sense. be trying to marginalize. Hmm. But, I mean, the biggest positive is how I feel right now. I feel so much, I feel like the, the amount of improvement that I've seen is really stark. Um, I, it's hard to describe, but I do feel as if there, there are definitely times in my day now where I don't, think about Parkinson's anymore or I don't feel Parkinsonian now I do feel some of the slight tremor and you can't see it but my feet are has a, have a tremor as well but there are definitely times in my day where I just can forget about it completely because I don't feel it anymore I don't feel any of the symptoms sometimes and but I do notice that like my speech is sped up and uh there's some other like weird ticks and blah 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 but 
uh, yeah, it, it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. So that would be, I guess, one very good thing to message to put out there. But it's very important that people understand what they're getting themselves into. And I think that it's very, very important for me to stress that I'm not your typical patient because of my age and uh, more importantly, the outcome that I've had. Most patients, they don't have this good of an outcome. I'm sure Alberto could speak to this even more than I can, but I'm sure you've seen patients that have gone through hell because of DBS. And maybe it would be very good, Alberto. I can do this as well if you want, but if you could tell us some of those stories as well, because I think we need that balance in this field. There's a lot of people in the field that like to just talk about all the success stories that they've had. I think it's also very important that we counter every single success story with a story of like complete failure on the part of either the system or the physician or whatever else it might be. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. The, and perhaps uh, one way to answer Andy's uh, question about uh, how to end up with a more positive framework is to think that while it is not possible for patients to do a search, a full search on their surgeons as to what kind of surgeon they have, they could ask what kind of evaluation is there in their centers, how many people are involved in the program, uh, in, in, in the program meaning as a whole, uh, the, the evaluation before surgery, during surgery, after surgery, etc. Uh, because that, that means that there is uh, a, a complete framework around this uh, in, a, in a manner that really ensures that only the best candidates for surgery move forward. That is, I think, the reason why some centers can have such wonderful outcomes uh, is because in part, people like you, Ben, are selected for therapy, knowing that the outcome will be very positive. Whereas if, if, if those uh, checks and balances that are provided by this multidisciplinary care team aren't there, then you can conceive that there will be people going through DBS that should have never been and they would have poor outcomes. So uh, it's more the center and the people involved, not only the surgeon, everyone involved, uh, rather than uh, just uh, any particular individual in isolation. I just have one final thing to say on that one last point though. Um, when it comes to statistics and knowing who your surgeon is or how we're ever gonna find out, who is doing their jobs properly or which centers should they should go to, which centers they should maybe avoid. I have I guess a very direct question for both of you. How can we get those numbers properly? Like, I think as a patient going in, we should have access to the following things. What is the success, what is the success rate in my country, province or state, city, center, and surgeon? I think each patient is owed those kinds of numbers going in. And I think that would alleviate some concerns for some people in some places and maybe heighten it in others. And I think it's all justified as well. Um, also, but it's complicated because as I'm sure you know, it also depends on which device they're getting and which lead they're getting and where the placement is and blah, 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 all of those things. But I don't see why we don't have some kind of like open, well, I see why and I understand it, but I, I would wonder what you guys think about having some kind of open accessible database where we can actually sift through these things and then quickly, or within a short period of time, have those kinds of numbers. And to Alberto as well, this shouldn't just be for DBS either. 
this should we should be able to extend this to almost every therapy that we have, especially the more invasive ones. Like Alberta knows a lot about the um, uh, what's it called L-dopa pumps as well. We should have the same numbers, same kind of statistics for those things as well. So yeah, what are your thoughts on how we might actually get there one day? Like what 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 are the barriers in place now, and then how might be able to start pushing the boundaries of those barriers, making sure that they're accessible as accessible as possible. I think it'd be important to know what numbers you're really trying to get at. So number of surgeries is, is, is a different number than, than, than quality of outcomes. So if you have, you know, 50 surgeries per month, just to give you a obscene number, uh, but don't know anything about the outcome, yet you have a center that has 10 surgeries per month and you know the outcome very well, you might choose the low output center uh, because you know that the quality is great. And the reason I'm pointing this out is that there is an incentive, at least in the US, for uh, DBS uh, surgeries to, to be done because they are more profitable than just about any other treatment approach that we do. So there was a time here at my institution where, in fact, we had to report how many surgeries were being done. And that was a metric that we were judged against. So uh, at the end of the year, we say, well, these were the, sur- the number of surgeries, the DBS surgeries that were done. And how can we make it this level the next year? And how can we keep on going up, right? It was about the number of surgeries and it has struck me as being the wrong incentive because if it's all about how many people you get through a program, you start lowering your, uh, your, your quality control. You say, well, you might not be a great candidate, but it would be great to have you in the program because it's going to count toward the numbers that I need to provide to my institution that I'm really doing due diligence in bringing enough uh, people into the program. So, so I was um, an advocate for eliminating the metric. And so we no longer have the metric to, to judge what we do. Now, I think, though, that still is important to know what is it that the life of individuals who've gone through DBS has turned out to be. That's very important, regardless of how many. I would actually argue that if we're successful in the research of disease-modifying strategies in Parkinson's disease, a true measure of future success would be that there will be fewer deep brain stimulation surgeries. That's a good point. Um, and yeah, I, 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 I can just uh, say, Ben, that, that there are plans to do DBS registries um, where, you know, a bit like for cancer um, that, you know, the metrics are being, you know, uh, quantified better and so on and um, collected and so on. I, I still think if you say um, these metrics are owed to patients, I totally agree to, with you from a single patient perspective. But if you look at the whole system, it could, of course, again, lead to negative effects where it's all a race about this number and then even, you know, hospitals uh, embellishing it a bit. And um then, you know, if they're honest, what, what about that one center that's slightly worse than the others when no patient ever go there anymore, right? So, so it's, it, has, it has nonlinear effects as well. Um, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong what you said. It's just that, that it, the story is quite complicated if you look at the whole system, I think. It is. You're right. And then on top of it, how would ever, anybody ever get trained if that was true? Like how would any, like that first surgery that somebody does? So it's a very complicated issue, but I don't know. 
I guess that's why we're here. So we can think about these things and talk about them. And one last, one last question, Ben, more from maybe, let's say, uh, just how you felt with DBS um, uh, before we move on. Uh, I think a day after your surgery, you tweeted, so a day after, you tweeted um, that you experienced your first day in five years on which you did not experience an off phase. Um, so maybe you can briefly tell listeners what that means. And then the question would be, do you still have similarly good days now or did that wane off? Um, so what it means for me in particular is that before the surgery, I was riding those like, kind of crazy waves where I was very bradykinetic and then very dyskinetic. And it was all throughout the day, and there's really nothing I could do because of these magical little pills here that I have. Um, so there's basically just Cinemet and uh, some, let's uh, uh, call it, that I take right now. Um, I don't take a lot of either right now. I mean, they're vastly reduced, but I still take enough that I feel good throughout the day. But prior to the surgery and prior to the programming in particular, what would happen is I would take a pill in the morning and then I become dyskinetic. So you, go, you go on the upswing of that wave and then you come down after about an hour and a half to two hours and then you become bradykinetic until the next one picks up and then that's your whole day basically is riding that entire wave. What it really meant though at the end of the day for me in particular was that I had maybe like two or three hours towards the end where I had any kind of a control over myself and more importantly I think I, made, I was down to like an hour of really productive time in my day. An hour where I felt like I could actually do the things that I wanted to do. An hour where I could like write or read or do whatever I needed to do in that day. Or get any work done that I need to do as well. So that's why I did DBS. is to try to make sure that I leveled that out a bit. Now, so far, I must say, I've had good days and bad days so far. Since the programming began as well. And yes, every single time so far, until recently, that we've, tr that we've brought up the simulation just a little bit the effect wanes over time. And I've noticed it very acutely as well because I'm trying very carefully to keep track of myself and my symptoms and my mood and all my behavior and all those things. But I do notice it every single time that we try to bring up the simulation of it. Um, it has an immediate effect and I feel great for a couple of days afterwards. Sometimes, as my parents might tell you, I might feel a little bit too good. Um, but then it wanes over time and I kind of come back down to earth. Now, I think though, the good news is that I think we finally found the right settings for me. Um, although, again, this maybe I shouldn't, yeah, I'm not gonna discuss everything there because there's some things I just can't talk about right now. Um, but there, yeah, that's what I found so far. So at the moment, I do still experience some off periods, but my off is not nearly as off as it was before and my on is not, I, I almost never get dis really dyskinetic anymore either. So I'm very grateful for that and very lucky to be where and when I am for that particular reason above all else. And even if it lasts for another couple months or a year or two years and I go back to that, it would still be worth it from my perspective. I'd still do it again if I had the choice. Amazing. So, Amazing. Okay. So, so Alberto, you had a debate at the 2021 Movement Disorders Congress where you discussed whether clearing of alpha-synuclein aggregates is an adequate therapeutic strategy in Parkinson's disease. So clearing up these plaques, is that what we need to do? Um, and I think Patrick Brundin from Michigan took the counter perspective. You said it's not a good strategy and um, Patrick said uh, the opposite. 
um, I think you mentioned it's it's a consequence rather than a cause. And the two of you, um, Ben and uh, Alberto, you have written a book about that topic as well. So I want to pivot into that um, concept. Can you maybe enlighten us why it's not a good idea to to try that? Well, <clears throat> sure. Let, let's start with the highest of all pictures. The highest of all pictures is that degeneration is about loss. We're losing brain. And so there was a time, though, that we had little to go by to try to provide an understanding of this. And it turned out that we began to making sense of neurodegenerative diseases, people with different conditions of brain aging by looking at the autopsy. So we were born out of forensic research. We figured that what we were seeing abnormal in the brain autopsies were not only providing order to different conditions we were evaluating clinically, but not all, but those were also giving us a sense of causality. So we violated two rules. The first is the rule of correlation does not equal causation. And then the second rule is that on a losing brain, we overlaid a theory of gain, of gain of function toxicity. So these two things have become dogma. Why do I say they have become dogma? Because if they would have been scientific ideas, we would have falsified them by now. We have enough evidence to falsify that the brain is undergoing degeneration and loss of all proteins, not gain of any, and that those proteins we see on autopsy are the end result of many biological processes, the beginning of none. And yet we refuse to change this framework, which is now century old, over a century in fact, and continue to do research, not to question our ideas, but to validate them. When our ideas aren't validated by research, then we change the research methodology, we search the paradigm, but we do not change our ideas. So Brain Fables was born with uh, Dennis Thatcher because we were both uh, saying kind of the same things. He, from his patient perspective, me, from my clinician's perspective, uh, he exemplified someone that was at such different level than anyone. And in fact, being the living proof that there isn't a Parkinson's, but many Parkinson's diseases, perhaps as many as people living with it. And who knows what disease Ben has, yet we are comfortable calling Ben Parkinson's disease. Can I ask one quick, it won't be quick, but I have a question for both Alberto and maybe Andreas as well, if you'd like to chime in, feel free. Why, something that I always try to ask myself, why might me and you be wrong? Why do you think, is there anything that could come along that might convince you that, oh, maybe we were wrong all along, me and you were wrong and that 
Maybe these aggregates really are as toxic as everyone's been saying all along. So maybe before we go into that, we should talk about just briefly, you know, what these aggregates really are. I think just for the listeners. So, so I think this, what you just said, Alberto, and what the book is also about is, for example, going against the Bragg hypothesis, right? Stating that you have aggregates of proteins that misfold, aggregate, and then they could spread around the brain, right? And um, maybe... Can you briefly just mention alpha-synuclein, Lewy bodies, Lewy bodies, and um, Bragg hypothesis? What yeah. are they in very, very simple terms? And then we can go into Ben's question, maybe. Yes, absolutely. So um, alpha-synuclein is a very important protein. There's probably many, many functions to it. The ones that we think most of is related to uh, synaptic function, uh, um, uh, and actually axonal health, et cetera, probably we don't know, don't know much about what that is. But what happens, though, is that in many circumstances that there is an injury to the brain of any kind, biologically, infectious, toxic, uh, et cetera, uh, these proteins undergo a transformation. Their normal state is soluble. And when they are exposed to whatever may be a pathogen for an individual, and of course, it'll be different in different individuals, the soluble protein becomes transformed into an insoluble protein. The insoluble protein has a configuration called cross-beta, uh, which means that it is stacked uh, in this fashion, uh, one against uh, another, and it no longer is soluble and it no longer is functioning. That's the certainty. The protein that is normal has ceased to be normal and therefore can no longer yield its function because it has transformed into something that it can no longer allow its function. But we've embraced the uncertainty, the idea that somehow the minute the protein is in this state, it acquires toxicity. We use the terms replication, propagation, spread from cell to cell, prion-like uh, um, spread and all of this suggests a gain not a loss suggests that we somehow gain something and that's why the brain is losing which makes no sense we're gaining a toxin and that toxin destroys the brain right so but the toxin is first that's what we believe you say but that's what that's what's wrong okay the highest level of evidence to test the hypothesis that the toxin that we have created in the form of aggregated proteins uh, is, is a, a clinical trial. And we already had one clinical trial in Parkinson's and there are many others of anti-synuclein strategies. We don't like the answer the trials are giving us just the way we don't like the answers the anti-amyloid trials have given us, just like we don't like the answers the anti-tau trials for progressive supranuclear palsy and more recently Alzheimer's disease are giving us. So we don't like the fact that the trials are telling us nothing about the certainty that we've embraced about the toxicity of the proteins, and we're insisting that one day will be proven right. Uh, and so I'm, I think for the listener, it's important to recognize that this is called the gain of function framework of diseases uh, of brain aging. The, the accumulation of the proteins in their abnormal state, uh, we think of them uh, as Lewy bodies in the case of Parkinson's, as amyloplaques in the case of Alzheimer's, 
uh, of tau in the case of progressive supranuclear palsy as being the main culprit, the main cause of the problem. And as I've mentioned, that is already, already not a concept that we can validate with any science. And in fact, it's been countered in, so, in such an overwhelming fashion that is, it is remarkable that in our field, we can be so insistent in our ideas and so neglectful of the evidence against them. You're saying the stages didn't correlate, for example, Brack stages don't correlate with Hern and Yar stages, right? And um, so, so, so essentially, the, the way I understood it is you said, you know, Brack, for example, Heiko Brack is a pathologist in Germany, I think, um, who started uh, one of these hypotheses of the spread of these proteins. So spread again, involving something like a virus, as you say, so, uh, but you're saying that, you know, makes no sense. And I think you mentioned he had 60 brains or so, and you had some sort of um, different stages that he, um, based on these 60 brains, um, came up with. And I think if I understand you correctly, you're saying there's no good evidence that these really map to disease and to symptoms at all, right? Right. Correct. There is just no evidence. So uh, he's in these um, these proteins uh, for or, uh, the, the tissue of the brain uh, of, of these individuals with um, alpha synuclein staining, and then sort of realized that there were several brains with little, with more, with mo even more, and then he drew a line. And I think it's a it's an incredibly elegant uh, way of explaining the diversity of what he saw. Uh, but he's trying to put into a pattern that which um, uh, doesn't, doesn't quite exist uh, in, in nature. I think uh, uh, he attributed this unrelated brains. Uh, somehow he just figures that from here, the pathology is spread over to here. So he talked about moving an actual dynamic process from one level to another. When in fact, he just had unrelated brains and, and, and all we could say is that there are different distributions of pathology. But that idea was so powerful and it remains so almost magical that we cannot get rid of it. it, it, it I mean, it, 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 it does exist in Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, right? So we have these types of diseases that do that, right? Yeah. So, in, yeah. so right. So why do proteins change? Proteins change because something comes to the brain, and that's that's called a, a, a pathogen, out, outside pathogen. Um, that's probably the most common reason why all of us aggregate uh, proteins, right? The second reason is that the proteins are inherently unstable, and that will be why somebody with an SNCA gene duplication would have Parkinson's disease, just uh, an, uh, an excess of, uh, an, uh, of, uh, of proteins that are in an, in an inherently unstable, and so they also will aggregate. By the way, there is still loss of the normal protein in that situation. And then the, the, the third mechanism is because um, proteins are ultimately be, uh, aggregated to, a, to an extent that they don't need an external surface by a virus, for instance, or an inherently genetically unstable uh, uh, infrastructure to them, they are just going to, uh, by concentration, create its own nidus of nucleation. These are all nucleation, not replication mechanisms. So prion disorders 
are uh, a rapidly depleting pool of, 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 of uh, proteins because they are turning immediately into their aggregates, into the amyloid forms. And amyloid is just a state of the protein. So in all of them, the, the loss of function mechanism can much more easily explain the, the illness. The, the gain of function is just an artifact of how we learn about phenomena because it does make a lot of sense to us. And also, much more importantly, I think, is because in humans, as we all are, we love a narrative where there is a central villain, <laughs> right? So we can galvanize against. And these stories have all the, the villain is the protein. And that's why the anti-protein approach is one that we are almost married to. It's very, very hard to dissociate ourselves from it. So the two of you wrote the book and now, now we can maybe come back to Ben, uh, Ben's question. So how could you be, have been wrong, right? So maybe, um, I think it's a great question. Or the other would be, what would be the arguments of your opponent at MBS um, to counter that? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, so, uh, well, Ben, you probably can answer this one because you've interviewed so many people over the years. So w why is it that just most of us really have been in love with the idea that proteins are the central villain in the drama of neurodegeneration? My opinion has a lot to do with how science itself works at the moment. Um, and how, how our brains work as well. I think we love a good story for the same reason that a child loves a good story as well. And we come to see the world through those stories that we tell each other. And up till now, the predominant story, had, the one that everyone's been telling, the one everyone's been seeing really, has been that same story about how aggregates form and it's toxic and then the brain cells die. And that it, it sounds like, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense when you first hear it, especially I remember it was first explained to me, I think by Jeffrey Cordauer, who, who, who really walked me through it and Patrick Brendan as well, who both spent the time to really walk me through it. And it made a lot of sense to me at the beginning, but then the question started to seep in. The question was first posed to me, I think by Dr. Simon Stock, who said something to the effect of like, If it was really that simple, we wouldn't, or something like, if the, if the problem is really that simple, then we would be too simple to solve it, or something to that effect, or even too simple maybe to even ask the question to begin with. I, I, I've really come to believe what he told me, and of course, everything that Alberto just said. I think those stories, in many ways, they're just leading us astray right now, and that we need to get back to something that's much more powerful. Because I think there's a more, so, so far, there's two ways that we can tell a story. I think there's one through the language that we use and there's another through the pictures that we can describe or that we can draw. Not only the pictures that we draw on paper, but the pictures that we can draw in our own heads. And this brings me to a question that I'd love to ask both of you as well. Although I don't know, Alberto, if you want to say anything before I get to this next question. Um, oh, but this, okay. This next question is about both of you as well. I don't know, Alberto, how much you've had a chance to see any of Andrea's work. But he has some of the most beautiful diagrams I've ever seen in my life about the brain and DBS and everything that is encompassing those two things. Now, what I've noticed is that in my encounters with some of these scientists and the researchers that I know, almost all of the best thinkers, or for my money anyways, it's all subjective, so I can't say anything objective, but I think all of the best thinkers in this field, and in any field really, they're, they're very strong sense of what they're looking in their mind's eye they really know what they're looking at in their mind's eye they can see the problem for themselves they can see the problem 
And the reason why that's so important is because there's so much that you can see visually that you just can't depict through language. There's so much information that comes to any human being through an image that you just can't see. I mean, look at this painting. So this is a painting that was drawn for me by uh, Dr. Megan Duffy, who's over at the NIH. I think it's a very beautiful painting of neurons and some cells. And so this is a neuron, obviously, in the middle. Dopamine producing neuron. I think this is an activated microglia cell. Sorry, Megan, if I'm wrong on these. Here's an oligodendrocyte up here and an astrocyte here. I often just stare at this thing and I wonder, wow. I, I try to like picture in my own mind all that's going on in my own brain. And I try to like, I've tried before to try to capture this through words, and it's just impossible for me to capture any of this. Like as soon as you start doing it, you quickly realize like how I don't know, I think the best word is impotent, really, how impotent we are in our ability to actually communicate this to each other through language. You have to be able to see it and you have to be able to see it with yourself, with your own like mind's eye there. If you really don't have that visual perception, if you don't have that ability, I, yeah, my, if it were up to me, I think the test of any great scientist, and I think one test of um, anybody in this field should be, how good of an artist are you? How, how well can you see what's going on in your own head? Or how well can you see whatever it is that you're trying to study? I, don't, I think if you can't really see it, if in some way you can't depict it, I would question how, how well you really know what you're talking about at that point. And from what I've seen so far, the best thinkers that I know in any field really are the ones that can actually see the problem for themselves. And I, my question to both of you is how much have you seen in that regard? Would you say that that's true or would you say that I'm just kind of ranting into nothing right now? Andy, would you want to answer? Sure. I mean, I, um, uh, it's not about me though. <laughs> that's, that's the rule of this podcast. But anyways, I, I, I think I told you this before, Ben, that, that at least for me personally, I'm really a visual thinker. So I, that might be the reason why I um, sometimes really spend um, hours into creating visualizations. It's, it's not only for communication, it's also for understanding myself. Um, you know, getting rid of noise sometimes, which can of course be dangerous, right? Uh, something, sometimes beautiful things are also simplified things. So that, that of course is always a danger, but um, it can also help to convey a specific message and so on. And then I, the second thing I think I told you also before is, is that I think a big part of science is communication. And I know that again is dangerous because you can create a fable and, you know, a good story, like, as you say, the Bragg hypothesis and so on. But um, without communication, science doesn't really happen, right? If we would um, find out something great, but tell nobody, it's like as if never happened. So clear communication, saving the reader time, saving um, is, is key to me as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree entirely, Andy. I, I, uh, that issue that Ben pointed, but it's so interesting because I think what Ben is ultimately forcing us to think is that we, we, we all of us have data and there is this thing called big data, right? And so we imagine that because it's big, must be good. Anything's if you, if you get upon a large body of data, you say, gosh, I'm going to have so many answers to it, right? And as you begin to put it together, depending on how you put it together, you're going to come up with different answers. Uh, you are going to think that those answers are true answers because our data-driven. And in fact, uh, our narrative is a data-driven narrative, right? Uh, it's not that Brack uh, came out with this idea out of the blue. He had some data. It's just the interpretation of the data. It, it, it was such a beautiful interpretation, but now we know it's biologically fictional. 
And, uh, and so the, the challenge for us is to try to figure out how do we detach ourselves from the most amazing, most compelling story that all of us grew up under. The Brack idea in 2003 revolutionized our understanding. And everything is about trying to make sure that we validate it. It's not about trying to figure out how to question it. So let me give you uh, an example of what I mean about the power of that idea. In our Twitter exchanges, uh, someone that uh, was one of the first to to criticize the Brack's uh, work was Bill Dower when uh, working with Bob, Bob Burke uh, at Columbia. Uh, to me, the, their, their paper uh, that was a review of Brack's own data and then additional data was the most beautiful argument against the conclusions of it. And, and I, I think it's one of the best papers written about Brack's uh, ever since. It's still wonderful. Well, when I uh, mentioned one of the central ideas of that paper in, in Twitter, uh, Bill Dower said, well, who, who was crazy enough to have said that? Certainly, you know, it was a strong argument. Certainly, uh, uh, Brack himself wouldn't have said that. And I said, no, you did it. And I actually copied a section of what he said in that paper. Well, he said, well, but that was in 2008. We now know so much more. So he was saying, oh, well, my criticism is not because now we really are into something and we, we maybe Bragg was into something. He forgot about his own criticisms of, of, of the Bragg's data uh, and, and, and almost saying, well, it's too far out, right? <laughs> so it just goes to telling you, it's just, why would you mess with that idea? It's a beautiful idea, even if it's not really being um, uh, validated by subsequent evidence. Subsequent evidence. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's one point I want to make, though, on the Brack hypothesis as well. One thing, if I ever had a chance to meet Heiko Brack, there's only really one question I want to ask him. In 2020, I think it was the summer of 2020, um, he came out with a paper, and in the paper, there's one sentence that really confused me. He said himself that the Brack hypothesis is a heuristic. That, that was the essence of what he said. Um, now, I, I should probably should go and read it again just so I make sure I understand it properly myself. But if we can, I'd love to find... I'm going to hunt for that afterwards and I'll send it to you and then we can maybe highlight it or whatever. Yeah, but he said... I think, it's, I think that's right. It's a, it's a heuristic and it shouldn't be ascribed to everybody and it shouldn't be something that we take too literally in essence. Again, I need to go back and read it so we can get the wording correct. But he... He himself told, was telling the world, basically, that yes, this is a helpful tool for scientists to continue doing their science, but it's not necessarily applies to any individual patient out there. And that by itself, I think, was the most damning statement I've ever heard about the hypothesis himself. And since it's coming from him himself, I can't think of any better evidence for why we should kind of abandon it and why we should try it to be, as Alberto's trying to like hammer home, Think of 10 million people with Parkinson's as 10 million individuals that all of, they might all at the end of the day have something slightly different as well. And at some point we might need to be able to figure out a way that we can deal with all of that complexity. If we're ever going to actually help any one individual live a better life with any of the therapies in development. So yeah. maybe a follow-up question to you, Ben. I think I've heard that multiple times from you that you say Parkinson's disease doesn't exist. What do you mean by that? I mean that, um, so I think that 
as I've said, clinically, we would say there are 10 million people with Parkinson's clinically diagnosed. Although even that number I question because apparently there's a million people in America alone. So if you extrapolate that to the rest of the world, there should be at least 20, 22 million people that have Parkinson's or have a clinical diagnosis of Parkinson's. But regardless, whatever the number is, no one can tell me right now what these people actually have. No one can say with any real confidence what's actually happening in each person's brain, other than the fact that, yes, there's some patterns of degeneration that happen, that seem to happen in some people, but not in others. And maybe if you have this kind of symptom, that might correlate with something that's got some pattern of de degeneration in, your, in one person's brain. However, I try again to visualize this problem. I try as often as I can to think about, okay, what are all these people really talking about? What, is, what are they trying to picture in their minds, really, when they say these things? And for one, I've come to realize that most of them don't even bother to try and picture anything, which I think is a problem. I think everybody should be trying to picture for themselves what's really happening for themselves. And two, more importantly, I picture for myself when I try and think about this disease and this problem that we call Parkinson's, and, I, and also the problems that we call Alzheimer's, ALS, FTD, whatever. And I quickly realized, I think, that what everyone's talking about here is as Alberto just said, it's just patterns of degeneration and they're almost kind of sporadic in each person's brain. Like you think about all of the complexity that goes on in one human and you come to realize, I think at some point that the pattern of degeneration that's happening in my brain and it's responsible for the symptoms that I feel is very, by rule, I think by mathematics alone, it has to be different from somebody else who has the same clinical label. I mean, just think about the STN for one and all the different neurons that innervate it and all the different like uh, glial cells as well that go through that region of my brain. To think that any two people, one, have the same pattern of degeneration. And then more importantly, I think, to think that any two people have the same. So I think of a disease and one disease as being four things, essentially. The same etiology, so they have to have the same root cause of their disease, the same his, the same basic history. So they have to have more or less the same gender, more or less the same age, more or less the same place. The third thing would be more or less the same pathology. So after they die or whenever that might be, we can open up their brains and say, okay, this person has the same blah, blah, blah. And then whatever the infectious ages is or whatever the infectious thing that sparked the whole thing, whatever the same, this, I guess a root trigger as well at some point as well. I think that was four. If not, maybe mistaken or whatever. So, so, uh, so Alberto, you, you, Oh, sorry. Yeah. Did you want to say more? Yeah. Just last point on that. So if you don't have each one, so I've asked many times and I, I put this out on Twitter and on LinkedIn once, and I put it out recently in a video as well that I think is going to be coming in the future. Can anybody in the world find me two patients that have exactly the same of those four things? Does it, are any two patients identical in that sense? And the only, the only things I've ever heard were the MPTP stories or the stories of agent orange. And yeah, maybe in those cases, I would say that they have the same disease and the same treatment might one day work for them. Oh, that was the last thing that I forgot to mention. If there's responding to the same treatment as well. So that's the fourth category of, uh, of what I would call a single disease. Now, I still have yet to hear, maybe Alberto can enlighten me to two, two documented cases of two people with, that have each of those four things that might be slightly different and yet their underlying disease, we can classify as the same underlying thing. Um, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, I'm open to the evidence and maybe it is out there and I just haven't seen it, but I'd love to be enlightened and I'd love to just hear, I guess what Alberto has to say about all of that as well.
No, I think what you just said is we know a lot about Parkinson's disease, but we know next to nothing about people living with it. If I have a person in front of me at the clinic, I have no idea what he has. Yeah, I call it Parkinson's disease. And I can go into a lecture about what Parkinson's is based on how we've defined it. That doesn't mean that I know exactly what that individual has. And that gap is remarkable that we've been able to live with that dissonance for so long of recognizing that we've created this multi-piece puzzle of Parkinson's and that we in fact believe that we are a few pieces away from creating the full puzzle uh, such that somehow it will then eventually give us the clarity about the individuals affected. That, isn't that sorry? I'll play devil's advocate a bit. So, so isn't that the same for any brain disease, even stroke? You know, very different symptoms, right? Or MS, or so. Absolutely, it is the same. The entire field of neurology is based on constructs that we have created in an era where it made perfect sense to have created them, but no longer. We are the only field of medicine. We and and psychiatry that we've created our concepts in the 1900s and uh, yeah, mostly in the 1900s, we, we really are uh, uh, using the same ideas. And with all the technologies that we now have at our disposals to probe into living biology, I recognize that brain biopsies are not going to be done, but there are so many ways uh, there is a liquid biopsy with exosomes. With all these technologies that we now have at our disposal, they are being used not to question our concepts, None of them is to validate them. So we still think that there is such a thing as bipolar disorder, such a thing as schizophrenia, such a thing as Alzheimer's, such a thing as Parkinson's, such a thing as stroke, as being one disease you mentioned. It. There is actually no single disease. You know what? Essential tremor is the worst. Essential tremor is a condition that's defined by anything, any, any tremor that you cannot explain it with any other form of tremor. It, it is not that. It's not a tremor. It's not cerebellar. It's not a dystonic. It must be essential. And we're so comfortable with it. And the latest criteria added a component of plus. Oh, well, it's kind of the tremor. It has a few other things. Hey, let's call it essential tremor plus, ET plus. It is just uh, our hubris. It's our hubris. It, we are incredibly wedded to an era where we think all the truths were uncovered. And now the technologies are here to validate them, not to ever question them. So... Makes a lot of sense. Still, I'll, I'll, I'll play uh, devil's advocate more. Um, going back to Parkinson's disease, if we can at least say, and that number might be wrong, but 90% respond to levodopa or even more, and um, most to DBS or many to DBS, would it still be, you know, a good idea to lump them to some degree? I mean, you know, they a label like a disease label doesn't need to explain the whole thing, all the variants there is, but it could explain one crucial point of a group of people, potentially. Well, so, yeah, so here's, I'm so glad you asked that question because here's usually where, when I say, well, we've failed so many things and then people will say, well, but, you know, Levodopa failed at the beginning and it was a problem to get it through and finally we discovered it was good, but if you had, if we had given up on it so soon, we wouldn't have it, right? So that's the explanation very similar to what you're alluding to, the deep brain simulation that, gosh, it worked for so many people. Well, lumping is perfectly fine as an approach for that which can provide symptomatic benefits by improving common denominators. So that's why dopamine deficiency, a very prominent common denominator 
can serve as the basis on which to improve upon because we have ways to improve uh, the, uh, the dopamine concentration in the brain. But disease modification is a completely different animal. And our discussion today is really pertinent. Most discussion on this topic, not the whole discussion, is pertinent to the idea that not two people are alike and therefore the diseases are going to be different, different people. Now, we use the term Parkinson's disease as, a, as an umbrella term for all of them. So, lumping, perfectly fine for symptomatic therapies. Splitting is mandatory for anything that relates to slowing the progression of someone's disease. Again, challenging that with, let's say, syphilis. You have a clear agent that does it, right? And you can treat it very well by now with penicillin. But um, it can create in some patients that have neurosyphilis, neurological and psychiatric symptoms, and in some other symptoms on the skin, as you, of course, know. Very good. And actually, that's what I, I was... I was in just tell based on that example many others the Ben's uh, four criteria I think should be really be two the, the, the middle ones uh, may not be because you can the most important thing is for a disease to have the same etiology right the same cause and that the treatment will that targets that etiology slows the disease in everyone it doesn't matter how that disease presents now we are doing subtyping we think that well yes of course Parkinson's is a um, heterogeneous disease and we need to subtype. We are often doing it on the clinical features. We're subtyping based on either people progress fast or slow or whether people have tremor or no tremor or whether people have early onset versus late onset, which are all clinical measures. They're not going to track with any specific biology. But I think that the key elements of a disease are the ideology is the same and the treatment addressing that ideology would be able to prove that by correcting it, you then uh, make the disease better. Now, As with the example of syphilis, it, syphilis can appear in so many different ways, right? It's a great imitator, uh, as we use, used to think of it. And so it doesn't matter how it presents. The important thing is you've identified the etiology uh, and, that, and that the treatment that we now have, that we've used for so long, addresses that etiology. That defines a disease regardless of how it is presented. We the two of you have, have lost faith that we will find something like that for Parkinson's. Right. I, well, we've never found, so the kinds of things we've been finding are common denominators. So, so the way we're finding biomarkers is by starting from the truth that we assigned as such. We say this group of people have Parkinson's disease. This group of people have nothing we can recognize. We're going to call them controls and we're going to measure as much as we can from the whole cohort and defined as biomarker that which statistically correlates with the group of Parkinson's that doesn't with the group of controls. That's how we're, we're doing this. Well, It, the, the, of course, there is always going to be statistically significant results, but how would they apply to an individual and how can they translate into success for individuals affected? I have no idea. So I think that to get to the success, we need to completely change the model and recognize that patients can only be treated for their disease if we know what their biology is. And so if we can answer the question of what is Parkinson's, the, what is the cost of Uh, Ben's Parkinson's, the answer uh, will be incredibly helpful to Ben because there might be a treatment already for Ben's disease, but that approach might not work for just about anybody else. I have one point, something that keeps me up at night as well. Something that I think, one thing that I think we might be wrong about is that this distinction between symptoms and disease, why does it matter at all? I mean, for patients, for me, my symptoms are my disease. They're what I deal with day in and day out. So why do I care about 
the ideology? Why do I care about the path? Why do I care about any of those things? If all I have to deal with is making sure that my tremor is not as bad as it was yesterday. And honestly, I'm not so sure we have any good answers right now because for the vast majority of patients who have Parkinson's or whatever, they're diagnosed past 60 years old, at least past 60, right? And I think the goal of medicine, for the most part, is to alleviate as much suffering as we can in a reasonable amount of time. So if we can give patients another 10 or 20 years past that point where they can live a comfortable life, isn't that the goal? Shouldn't that be, a bit, one, isn't it more realistic for us to think that we might get there? And then two, shouldn't that be what we're actually trying to do here? I guess hopefully both, right? I mean, I'm only doing that. BBS will never cure anything, um, right? I'm, I'm just working on trying to, you know. Um, That's my point. But, For me but, right but now. Others, so, you know, it, you, you get. Uh, so, uh, I, I, uh, Ben, uh, that's why I, I the, and this point earlier, I think it, it reminds me that I've, uh, we always have to be clear that there are two levels of discussion. One is symptom. And one is disease, and they are different, different discussions. That's why every so often we talk about disease, and somebody says, "Oh, but hold on a second, DBS is so good. Why, why should we change our framework?" Right. Uh, so, so the discussions that we have to do about moving the field forward so that DBS eventually is no longer needed because we're going to have disease modifying treatments uh, requires a discussion that can no longer be lumping. It has to be about individuals. So, yes, your disease is your symptoms. I get it. Uh, but that's if the way you define your disease. But you know that the symptoms are coming from somewhere. And that's what we don't know. You don't know. And, and, and that's what we need to target eventually. If we're ever going to stop your disease, we can control your symptoms as DBS is beautifully doing for you. But your disease will continue apace, uh, conceivably. Now, you, I think, have a good disease, as a lot of people with your age and uh, perhaps your genetic background do. So that's good. But the urgency for others where the progression is, is faster, there's some more disability, well beyond motor features, right? Cognitive, depression, et cetera. So we need, the urgency here is that we cannot continue thinking in the manner that we used to think or we have always think uh, uh, for so long. So the subtitle of your book is also a blueprint to conquer them. So what, what is the blueprint? Can you, both of you, uh, define that a bit? So the blueprint to conquer them is to start with the low-hanging fruits first. That's the initial, initial level. There, in, among all the subtypes we know, the genetic subtypes make the most sense for us to concentrate on. And there are already organizations that are concentrated on this. Uh, these uh, subtypes, of course, themselves are different diseases, right? So, for instance, GBA, uh, associated Parkinson's disease, is a variety of different diseases. So is LARC2. But I think that if we now concentrate on those as a proof of principle that there could be therapies uh, whose mechanisms are going to be responsive to the biological abnormalities that are uh, mediated by the gene mutation, that could really be good. So... That implies a change of the framework where any discoveries on LARC2PD or GBAPD will not be discoveries applicable to everyone, but people with those mutations and perhaps subsets of those mutations. That's the first low-hanging fruit. The second one is that future biomarker programs, and in fact, the current one we have here in Cincinnati, uh, would not longer try to determine what is it about Parkinson's that's different from Alzheimer's or what is it about tremor-dominant Parkinson's disease that's different from tremorless Parkinson's, but rather to study aging. 
to have a biomarker cohort that is made of people with Parkinson's and a variety of other Parkinsonisms, as well as Alzheimer's and other dementias, uh, and even other neurodegenerative conditions, so that we can have a large uh, cohort of individuals aging in funny ways, for which, of course, we have names, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, etc., but where the analysis has nothing to do with the labels, so that the, the labels are no longer the independent variable, but in fact, the dependent variable. We still deep phenotype these individuals, but what we're really interested are in those uh, uh, who have bioassay range abnormalities uh, that would uh, serve to select them as candidates for therapies that we already have and might already be available for repurposing. So in, in, in all this subtyping discussion, you know, trying to understand how many subtypes, it's really not relevant how many subtypes there may be of Parkinson's or Alzheimer's because at the end of the day, that may not be actionable. What we really are looking for is the proverbial needles in the large haystack of neurodegeneration, the individuals for whom, in fact, if we knew what disease they have biologically by virtue of bioassays that we've never deployed before, we would have uh, determined that they are, in fact, already susceptible for therapies that could stop or reverse their condition altogether. Uh, that, I think, is the way forward. Well, Ben and I think is the, the, the way forward. Ben has been instrumental in already the successes that we've had uh, in the Cincinnati cohort biomarker program. And we think that this is something that will eventually get us there. Uh, but it, I think the, the, the idea that a disease such as Parkinson's, as we define it, will ever be cured should be replaced with the idea that, well, we're going to cure individuals with a biologically defined disease one at a time. That's a, that's a more scientifically a reasonable way, source of hope and that curing Parkinson's or having a biomarker of progression of Parkinson's as sexy as those things are, aren't based on really what we've learned and what we've known already from the data. You, you compared that to cancer as well, right? Where, exactly. Where exactly. curing all cancer is not realistic, but specific types might be. And, right. Exactly. Exactly. So the progress that has been made in, in, in oncology is tremendous because they learned eventually, they actually didn't have as many trials as we've had before they changed. We, we have too many trials and we should have changed much earlier. It's never too late to change, uh, but the field of oncology needed only one negative trial uh, in the comparison between uh, breast preserving surgery versus radical mastectomy at the time thought that it was the only possible treatment for breast cancer. That trial yielded few, uh, no changes between the groups. And so they stopped uh, from continuing additional studies, trying to uh, do another study with breast cancer at a prodromal stage or, you know, more radical mastectomy or change, changing the variables. They just said, well, we stand corrected. Maybe breast cancer is no one disease uh, and let's work on it. Four decades later, 75% of all breast cancers fall into 20 different classes, each of which are treated differently, and many of which are curable. Only 25% of breast cancers, we have no idea what they are. They are negative with everything that's known. But the progress is remarkable. And it's been because they've really gone through the work of recognizing that not two breast cancer patients are alike. But maybe to, I, I, I agree with you, but to challenge it, you, you, you have these success stories like penicillin, right? Which can kill so many bacteria that have so many different diseases coming out of them. Um, so there are sometimes these remarkable discoveries. And um, 
let's assume you find the one common denominator of most, make, surely not all cancers out there, and then um, find a way to influence that. Do you think that's completely unrealistic for cancer or for PD to find some sort of unifying, and with that I don't mean 100%, but let's say 70% um, of that heterogeneous diseases I actually think it's realistic, but here's how it's realistic. By, re by going for what we know to really be true, which is, is the only truism that we cannot contest, that proteins only function when they are in a normal soluble state. And that in Parkinson's, the levels of all proteins, alpha-synuclein, total tau, phosphorylated tau, um, amylo beta-42, all of them are low. And that if we could, in fact, move away from anti-protein, so trying to get rid of all the, the proteins in the aggregated state and, in fact, replace the levels of proteins in their depleted state above the threshold for compensation, yes, we could have disease modification. I wouldn't refer to it as precision medicine because it is not dependent on what the variables are for each individual affected that trigger the problem aggregation, but it's rescue. It's, it's a rescue approach that is going to likely translate into disease modification. There, there's just two quick things that I'd like to say, if I could. Um, one is in regards to, one is a message to, not necessarily to any of us, but to everyone who might be listening and to anybody who might be able to affect change on a more global or international level out there. And that is simply about the systems that we have in place that govern everything that we do in medical science right now. I had a long discussion just yesterday with a good friend of mine who's a doctor here. And we had a good and healthy discourse about the nature of our systems that we live in. And she was trying to like convince me basically that it's why it's the wise approach would be to work within the system and to make sure and just to use whatever tools that we have currently available. And then to make sure that we accomplish change through those mechanisms or through those means of actions. But I keep thinking about something that Alberto wrote in the book called the Framingham study, which was think started like 50 years ago about heart disease. And I realized how long it took for them to actually get to their goals. And while they've gotten to some of their goals and while heart disease is not as bad as it was back then because of that study, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I quickly realized that every single patient with any kind of neurodegenerative disease alive today would not benefit from any of those studies that are currently going on. I mean, I think the CCVP is really the only one that's actually trying to take an unbiased look and do something similar to what the Framingham study did for brain diseases now. If we have to wait 50 years until we get a result that actually helps us any patient down the road, then I'll be long gone before that. And so every single patient that anybody knows of that's actually listening to this right now. So working within the system, or I, I don't know how to do this right now. I don't know how... We're ever going to be able to accomplish this, but I hope that somebody out there either has the resources or is smarter than I am and has a good idea for how we might actually get there and how we can actually, either within or without the system, do something that can actually accelerate this and make sure that we get there much sooner than that. Now, my other story, though, I think will tie everything in together. Um, I don't know, you can cut this out and put it at the end, maybe, but it's about both DBS and about um, uh, disease modification. Because it happened to me while I was in the surgery. Um, and it happened. So throughout the surgery that I went through, I had a long discussion with Dr. Kalia, who was my neurosurgeon. Um, and in it, there was one other distinct moment that I remember now where we just uh, asked him very bluntly about Parkinson's disease. 
and how long he plans to one be in this field and when a cure is going to come. And he told me that he thinks, oh, you know, within the next 20 or 30 years, we'll have a cure and then I'll, I won't have a job anymore. And I think, although I'm not sure if this is real or not, I don't, I don't know if this is just a fable that I made up in my own head, but I believe it to be true, or I'm going to tell people anyways, as if it is true going forward. I believe it was during my microelectrode recording as well, because I remember that something happened in that recording when he said that answer. And to me, it sounded like laughter, because I think he was just kind of, he was either lying just to appease me, or what he was saying was actually that, or what I thought, or I think I might have even just laughed out loud when he said that, because I know that in my heart anyways, it's not true. And in my brain, I think it's also not true. We're never going to try to cure Parkinson's, this thing called Parkinson's disease, because Parkinson's disease does not exist. We're only ever going to get to a good solution once we have much better answers for all, for each and every single patient that's out there. And we're only ever going to get there once we actually start treating each person like an individual and not like some box that needs to be ticked or some person under some umbrella. So yeah, that's the end of my rant there. And um, unfortunately, I have to go in like a minute now. But I, I think both of you need to go. And I, I'm, so, uh, I, I'm so happy you, you had that much time already. So I think it was a great ending. Uh, any last word, uh, Alberto, from you or if not? No, Andy, thank you so much. This is uh, wonderful to have had the time to discuss. I, um, I wanted to uh, just also congratulate you on the work you've been doing. It's just uh, quite remarkable. And I know that there is a lot that we need to learn from what you do too. And so I hope uh, that uh, your future work will continue to uh, enrich us and inform the future directions we all need to have. So thank you for inviting us to this, to this session. Thank you both. Amazing.